Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the national security industrial base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert Lauren Bedula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and Special Operators, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base. Lauren Badula and Hondo Gertz here with today's guest, Renan Horowitz, who is the president and CEO of Elbit America and has been with the company over 30 years, so has seen a lot during that time, particularly um, as the defense industrial base has evolved. Elbit is a, a, an aerospace and defense company and is three over 3,000 people strong. So uh, Renan r- runs a big team focused on supporting the Department of Defense and um, excited to dig into some of the issues on our show today. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Uh, Renan, what we were thinking as we were getting going here, it's probably been Got them 15, maybe almost 20 years since we started working together. When you took over as CEO, I was down at SOCOM at the time. And you've, you've got a fascinating story of uh, how you got here and probably not what you expected to be doing when you first uh, stood out in your career. How do I, how'd you get here? Uh, what, what was your journey like? That's really an interesting story. So, so Hono, I, um, I actually uh, started my career actually in the Israeli army of all places. And I spent there uh, almost 10 years. Uh, in technical roles, um, and um, you know, after about nine years, came time to decide whether I'm going to stay there or I'm going to do something else. And uh, I had uh, a couple alternatives. One was a more of a commercial company back then that was dealing actually with uh, uh, test equipment for the PCB industry and so forth. And then I had Elbit as a possibility, and decided to go with Elbit. Um, so, so joined Elbit. It's actually 1989 uh, and uh, started there as a program manager. First program actually was actually a collaboration of all companies with GE back when GE was still in defense. So we're talking about the, the industry. This is 40 years ago. Uh, and we were teaming to do some electrical drives for the M1 tank between Elbit and GE. Uh, and then came the opportunity, Elbit wanted to start uh, their business in the, in the U.S., came the opportunity to come over here. The original guy who uh, was planning to come, uh, his wife decided at the last moment that she does not want to move to Michigan of all places. I got the phone call, I came and interviewed, and that's how the journey started in uh, 1991. We started basically as a um, greenfield, less than 10 people. I was the only one that came from Israel to join that, that company. Other people were mostly retired executive from Lee Ziegler, today at Smith and, uh, and uh, basically GE. Um, and um, after a year and a half, in 93, came the opportunity for Elbit to acquire the facility for Worth from uh, Gordon, England, then uh, the president of General Dynamics Aircraft Division. We bought the facility. I came down to Texas, and uh, the journey started there. And uh, these days, as Lauren, as you said, uh, 3,500 people run $1.6 billion, 11 states, major facilities. It's a hell of a journey. It's uh, really great. Yeah, it's, uh, it's awesome to see what you built there. Well, we often talk about service, and, uh, and I think some folks think about it. You know, if you have to go into military, it's military for life, and it's all you're going to learn is kind of military, you know, if it's army infantry or stuff. Can you recall, you know, some things that kind of in those formative years that have really helped you kind of shape the way you approach 
leadership and problem solving, you know. Absolutely. You know, I, and I think this is common no matter for which country you're in. When I was for 10 years in the Army, my mission, my purpose was very clear. And I'm sure, Handel, for you as well. There was no question about that. And then you go to industry and you start asking questions. Why am I doing it? What am I doing here? And I found actually you know, in Elbit and throughout the years, that's one common thing when we talk about our mission of protecting innovative solutions to protect and save lives, was really a mission that started resonating with me. And I think to this day is one of the main things that resonates with our workforce, a common mission around protecting and saving lives where we actually were able to create a common theme there, even in our commercial aviation business, where the world leader in enhanced flight vision systems, which enhance safe flight safety, or in a medical business, Lauren, which, which you asked me before, uh, where we're really doing things to protect and save lives. So I, I think for me, the importance of doing something that matters, something important, has always been there, has always been my main motivation. And uh, that's one of the things that I'm working with, with people to, to really impart and, and make sure they feel the same way. That's it's really important and something we talk a lot about on our show because we want to drive more talent towards serving and towards mission. So along those lines, you've seen a lot over the past few decades in terms of mission. What do you think is most important today? You know your customer well. Um, what is top of mind from a national security perspective? I think uh, I, I think the the number one thing that I worry about and that I try to work is to make sure that people in the nation, the people, the workforce, people engaged with us understand why what we do is so important. And, and I think one of the things that I've seen and we're trying to preserve at Elbit America, even as we've grown, is how do we maintain this family culture, the closeness? And the family culture is really more around, again, a common purpose, a common mission, a dedication to the warfighter or the customer, the pilot or the medical technician, uh, to really unite people to drive that. I think that's one of the things that we need to continue to do relentlessly across the board. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a starting point for everything that we want to achieve from a national security perspective. On top of that, of course, technology and innovation and quick cycle, I worry, um, like many in the industry, that we have slowed down. We've lost the agility. We've lost the flexibility. Everything takes a very long time. Uh, how do we get innovation in? How do we speed up the innovation? How do we keep our technology edge? I think something very important. So along those lines, I mentioned before we started, I was going through some of your past work and listened to remarks you gave for the Wharton Aerospace and Defense Con Conference back in 2010. And at that time, you talked a lot about the importance of commercial technology and innovation. And so I know it's something that's been important to you. Can you talk a little bit about how you think through partnerships when it comes to commercial technology and, as you said, getting the best tech into the hands of the warfighters? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think, I think uh, it's interesting. I, I reflect on what I was talking there. And if I recall, I don't recall the exact words, but I think, Honda, we were talking about the Navy and we're talking the fact that back then it was the first time that we put a moving digital map on a V-22 using commercial components into a processor and ruggedizing and was really an innovative concept. And I think today, of course, it's common. People do that all the time. Uh, I think there is a lot of potential in leveraging commercial technologies. On the other hand, I think that 
the combination of those commercial technologies with people like Albert America that understand the mission, they understand the operating environment is the winning uh, formula. I think there is, on the other hand, sometimes a thought that just taking a commercial technology from Silicon Valley or somewhere else will come and solve that. Uh, we're seeing quite a lot of cases where this is not as easy as people think. So I think a role for companies, especially companies like Elbit America, which has the right size, we are small, nimble, and agile enough. At the same time, we have scale, we have the depth to go in, team with some of those companies, leverage that capability, but put it in a situation, put it basically in a, in a packaging or in a solution that is fit for the operating environment, for the warfighter, for the operating environment. So I think, I think that's the winning pl- uh, formula. I don't think there's any quick wins there. I think it's rarely to see a quick win because you have to adapt it to the operating um, environment. I mean, a lot of discussions on, for example, on communications. Why can't we just use something like an iPhone? Where, uh, because an iPhone is not as rugged, an iPhone is not a robust, and the iPhone doesn't work in all of these environments, and you have to take, but the technology in there is remarkable. And leveraging that into a situation, right now we're working, for example, uh, with the Air Force on uh, the next generation survival radio for for pilots. And, and I remember General Golfin had this view that the future next generation survival radio has to be like an iPhone with an app. The pilot, the down pilot just pushes the app and the system knows automatically where he is. I think it's a great vision. I think it's doable. But at the same time, in order for that next generation survivor where you to operate in the environment that a down pilot is in, it has to be able to talk to satellites. It has to have encryption. It has to have the right capability. It has to have the right power management scheme on that. And that's where we are good at. We, we know how to do this. So, uh, you know, you've seen a tremendous transformation of the industrial base. We like to call it an industrial network over the you now almost four decades you've been in the industry. And, and, and Elbin America is kind of one might say in no man's land, you know, might say it's a great opportunity. Others say it's, you know, you're too big to get small business set asides and too small to, to kind of be in, you know, the prime take all kind of thing. How do you view one kind of the makeup of the industrial base? Is it right? Or we've kind of consolidated too much and lost some of that, you know, fast enough to be nimble, but big enough to scale. And do you have any ideas how we could better balance out the industrial base or network so that we've got performers from small to mid to large? I I think uh, it's a great observation, Hondo. I think that we at Elbit America with uh, just a handful of others are in this no man's zone of the middle-sized companies in the defense industry, and I worry about that. Uh, I think that... On one hand, the consolidation and the big, big primes are allowing them to maybe make more investment and to bring more resource to bear. And some of them are doing it well. Some of them are doing not as well. On the other hand, the very small companies, the under $100 million, don't necessarily have the scale to really bring the capability. So I think the, there's a significant role for companies like Elbit America that has on one hand, have on one hand the flexibility, on the other hand, the scale to bring that together. Uh, I think that the, the Department of Defense and the services have to do more to reach out to companies like Elbit America and get us involved. 
Uh, I know there is ongoing forum, and Hunter, you probably know better than me on that, that where you know the six top CEOs have been invited for discussion with the Deputy Secretary of Defense or the Army. Or the, I think it actually has to be much, much broader reach out. I think we need to make sure that the, the mid-tier companies are being involved, being engaged in that. I think that they're... The department is pushing very, very hard the open system architecture. I think that's a tool that needs to be used to bring additional players into the mix. I yet to see that this is actually happening. In some cases, it is. In some cases, it is. Uh, the Army has done some things, for example, on the striker to be able to bring uh, a new turret provider, not through the OEM. I'd like to see more of that. I'd like to see more opportunities for mid-tier companies to come in and bring capabilities working directly with the government. I think we can do this effectively, creatively, and more affordably. So I, I think that needs to be part of, a, of an overall industrial-based policy that preserves the role for these mid-tier companies like Albert America that can bring the innovation, can bring the scale at a much more affordable, quicker pace. Yeah, I think another thing a lot of folks forget is when you look at mobilization, let's say if we have to if we have to really scale up, that's really hard to do only through one or two or three companies. If you look at World War II, part of our strength in mobilizing was all these smaller, mid-sized companies. You had ten percent to all those companies. It's much easier than trying to double the size of a big prime. And so I think I think you're right. We really need to pay attention to that, particularly. Uh, if we're going to try and scale up, um, you know, you've you mentioned your background from Israel. Uh, they've got a very robust tech uh, scene. And, and are there lessons learned you can uh, maybe bring forward of how the LBIT over there, the larger LBIT, you know, integrates with uh, startups and the other kind of innovative uh, elements of the ecosystem in Israel? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, something that I think is very positive that's happening here irrespective of the startups. I mean, they, especially with the Army, SOCOM has always done that, Marine Corps as well. The whole um, effort to leverage soldier or warfighter touch points. Basically, one of the unique things in Israel is the closeness between the user, the people who define, and the engineers. And we, we used to say, which is still the case, that you can have an engineer at Albit working during the week, and then the weekend going in reserve duty in the Israeli Air Force and using the equipment that he, he or she is designing or maintaining, which is which is really great closed loop. And I think we've seen some nice uh, work with the Army, for example, on EMVGB and others where the Army has really leveraged soldier touchpoint very, very effectively. So I think that's a good way to look at what they're doing. I think, again, Israel has the uniqueness of this geographical closeness, the fact that people serve in the military and then go to do startups so they understand the mission. Um, I, I think the leverage, the lessons learned in here is to do more of the things that, uh, Hondo, you've done when you were at SOCOM that they continue to do, which is create these forums for a more direct interface between the user, the mission, the startups, and the companies. Uh, I think this is something that needs to be done. Uh, some things that I've encouraged the Air Force to restart doing. Um, there, for several years, there's been a, a very good forum of uh, CEO, PEO forum where we exchange stuff. They stopped doing it once COVID 
happened. I encouraged uh, Andrew Hunter to restart that effort. I think the other service need to look at that. How do we bring together? There's a discussion uh, with AFA regarding potentially doing a war fighting exercises, um, even at the classified level, bringing industry and the military to work together and startups. So I, I think that interaction is actually probably the magic in Israel. That allows them to move much quicker because the closed loop is there very quickly and the technical people, the engineers, understand the mission and understand what the warfighter is trying to achieve. So while on the topic of Elbit's global footprint, as Hondo mentioned, Elbit America's favorite parent company is Elbit Systems based in Israel. So you've gone through the process of standing up certain structures to oversee the U.S. side and still maintain a pretty significant global footprint in terms of business. As our global landscape globalization is evolving and changing and we're trying to shore up critical technologies and capabilities, can you tell our listeners a little bit about this process of having a foreign parent and an allied company and running a business in the U.S.? I know we have listeners from allied countries who are interested in starting businesses here in the U.S. Absolutely. So, uh, as I mentioned before, we have we started we had our first SSA basically at the at the 1991 or beginning of 1992. So we're we're uh, more than 30 years, three decades of what's called foci mitigation experience uh, with the SSA board. And about a year and a half uh, ago, almost two years, when we purchased Spartan, that the Sonoboys for the U.S. Navy, we actually established a proxy board to manage that. So we, we, we understand the structures from both sides. Um, I, I, think, I think several things I would say. One is our strategy has always been a long-term strategy. I think the success of us or let's say companies like BAE is a long-term strategy. We just in the last less than four years invested, Elbit invested three quarters of a billion dollars to buy companies in the U.S., uh, we bought the night vision business from Harris in 2019. And as I mentioned, we, we bought Spartan as well. So a long-term investment. Well, um, this week, we're taking uh, ownership of a new facility. We constructed Greenfield facility in Charleston, South Carolina, where we're going to build artillery systems for the Israel Defense Forces, but also we'll do the command post integrated infrastructure for the U.S. Army. So we're making investment. I think number one is there's no quick wins. You, you got to be there for the long term. You got to be there for the investment. Uh, you've got to hire the right people. Uh, we have 3,500 people. I know some people have different perception, but we have about 15 people that came from Israel in this entire 3,500 people. And the vast majority of them are actually involved in our foreign military funding business for the government of Israel. So it's a, it's a U.S led workforce. It's a U.S. workforce. Investing in it, investing in a partnership, investing in relationships and long-term relationships, either, you know, like the relationship Honda and I have for years, but with many other people in the industry and the government is very, very key. I don't think it's different than any other place. I mean, you establish yourself, you establish the trust and the confidence, you build, invest in the long-term. I think that's a secret sauce that we've been able to, uh, to build on for many, many years. 
you've set a great example for other companies and founders who are thinking through the growth we want to see to maintain competition to to go from a small to a medium to a large. Um, so I think that's a great example. And along the lines of the international or global focus, how are you as a CEO thinking about international business right now? Is your strategy changing as we battle near peer competition? Yeah, so so I, I think there's several aspects to it. One, I think that the U.S. has to do more leveraging and building relationship with partners and allies and leveraging that capability. I think that uh, countries like Israel, but many others, have a lot of capabilities, either in technology or capacity or ability to do that. I think the uh, NTIP model that was, was built up is good. I think we need to extend it doesn't have to be everybody in the same category, but we've been promoting uh, another category of countries like Israel that can be allies and can do things together to promote that. So I think that's one thing that we have to integrate into the industrial base collaboration. I think the militaries are collaborating in a very effective way. I think from an industrial base perspective, there's a lot of room to improve how we collaborate with other countries. We definitely, now from a demand perspective, so Elbit overall operates in many, many countries. Uh, Elbit has seen a significant increase in demand as a result, especially of uh, the conflict in Ukraine for countries all over the, the world. The Abram Accords opened up for Elbit a lot of opportunities in the Middle East, which is wonderful to see. It's really remarkable. I mean, for the first time in my life, about a year ago, I was in Dubai and flew actually from Tel Aviv to Dubai. So that was, uh, that was quite, a, quite an experience to be there and to, to see how the world is changing. Um, I, I think one of the challenges that we have, for example, as you look at some of the partnerships around Oculus, if you look at other things, how do we now start thinking about leveraging the growing capability Albert has in the UK, for example? We have over 600 people there and a lot of significant efforts and programs. In the U.S., in Australia, and Canada, and how do we play in that new ecosystem that, that talks about the U.S. and its close allies? In this case, the Oculus or the Five Eyes or all that. I think that's something that we're really thinking about how to do that, how to do this effectively. Um, I think there's, again, room for DOD to actually open up the dialogue for more companies to explain how we can serve the national security interest in doing that. Because I think right now, a lot of what we know is more from public domain, from public publications, rather than really a dialogue with DOD of how, how, how does the U.S. want to leverage those capabilities? Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I'm struck by the conversation of, you know, closing the distance between engineer and operator and acquirer uh, and, and creating this ecosystem of trust. And what I hear and I also believe is we've got to do the same thing on this industrial network and create this common understanding, common knowledge base, create the relationships and the networks. Do you think industry is open to doing that collaboratively or do you worry that the competitive pressures work against trying to get some common level of knowledge and trust um, I, I think that that's a that's a that's a good perspective on that. I think I think there is, of course, some limitations around it. I still think that there's way more that we can do 
without actually creating the competitive issues. Uh, I think I think that needs to to happen. I think we can do that. Um, leveraging organizations like Benz or AIA or NDIA to be the facilitator of that is good, but we have to enable it. Uh, I think the key in there is the participation from the real influencers and decision makers. Too many times I'm seeing these forums, and actually it's something I worry about in the last few years, we've seen less participation from key decision makers and key influencers in the middle tier and DOD in these kind of forums. And if they participate, they show up uh, for about an hour and then leave. And by the way, I have the same criticism for some of the executive leaders in our industry that actually, rather than show up and spend time, I know I've, I've formed a lot of different relationships and good dialogue and partnership through some of those conferences where people make the time to show up and to participate and engage. So I do think... There's some concerns about competitive issues, but I, I think it's doable as long as um, it's really treated right and the right people and decision makers show up for, for the dialogue, for the discussion. Yeah, I think too many times we let that on either side, either fear of intercompany competition or fear of getting uh, you know, some sort of conflict of interest, get in the way of actually just talking to each other. Uh, in my experience, is if you get the right folks in the room, have the right discussion, then you can, everybody can go take that and use it however they think is, is best. But, but we're, we're, I think way too far onto the worried about talking as opposed to actually talking and, and getting benefit out of that. And you mentioned Ben's and I know you've been a member for about probably 10 years now, which is uh, fantastic. Can you talk a little bit about why organizations like Ben's play an important role as an outlet for collaboration or what more we could be leaning on organizations like Ben's for? Well, first of all, I, th- I think organizations like Ben's have a key role into what Lauren we started with, which is, you know, how, how do you promote in a broader audience the understanding of national security and the needs and why it's important? How do you create this, this common sense of mission and the importance of that? So I think Benz has to do, you know, does that because it's not just people from defense. It's mostly people who have, you know, other interests and other engagement. So I think, I think that that's very, very good. Um, I, I think, again, opening up the dialogue. An organization like Benz can, can create the dialogue. I've, for, for some time, I haven't talked to uh, General Votel recently about that, but I've tried to see how we can create maybe more partnership between Benz and maybe some of the other organizations to really facilitate that kind of dialogue, a direct dialogue with the warfighters, a direct dialogue. You know, there's a lot of discussion right now on, on China and Indo-Pacific. I mean, what about creating a forum where we get some of the operators, some of the people that are doing the actual work and create the situation where we bring industry, we bring stakeholders and have a dialogue. can be unclassified or can be limited in some cases to a classified dialogue to those that have the clearances. To have a dialogue of what are the real issues? How do we address the real issues? I, I think there's room to do a whole lot more of that to really create that um, innovation and, and, and leverage and put us in a better position. So, we, you know, we, we've talked a lot about process and, and some of the bigger things. At the end of the day, almost all of this comes down to people and talent. Uh, and, you know, I think we're, we're seeing some struggles over the past couple of years of uh, getting the talent flow into national security. 
uh, that we used to have. I'm sensing that has been shifting around a little bit, but what's your sense as a CEO of how do you keep the 3,500 uh, folk, talented folks you have uh, motivated and recruit new uh, new folks? Is it getting harder? Is it getting easier? Is it what's What's the sense from your standpoint? I think, first of all, I think the competition for talent is not going away. There's, I've read some articles recently that because of layoffs in the tech industry, then suddenly everybody thinks it's going to get easier. I don't think it is. I think it's going to get harder. I think that we just have a limited size of a workforce that we all are trying to change. So I think, what are we doing about it? One again, the sense of mission to explain why it is different, why you're making an impact, why why this is important. The second thing is, how do you maintain, how do we maintain the family environment? Um, I think I mentioned to you guys before, I continue to do for the last two and a half years a weekly audio message to the employees. And I recorded myself and we distributed it because I am working hard to stay connected, for people to stay connected with me, to hear my voice and to have that belonging sense of belonging to the mission and to what we do. I think that's very, very important. We're doing other things as well. We're partnering with universities. We uh, have a partnership that we're working with Texas A&M. They're, by the way, building a new engineering campus in Fort Worth, which I'm delighted about. We're working very, very closely with them on that. Um, Auburn in, in Alabama. We're, we're looking at Georgia Tech in uh, in, in Georgia, at Virginia Tech, in Virginia, we're really working with universities to really bring people early on to get them excited about doing that. Um, I, I think we need to do that. I think we definitely continue to have competition on uh, on pay and so forth. And, and the reality is if a company like uh, Google wants to take away somebody from us, they'll be able to take it away. They can pay more. They can give them more stock options. Uh, we're trying to create a differentiated environment that's different, that's built on mission, family environment, ability to impact, long-term perspective versus just short-term, and, uh, and try to get the best. So as, as you do that and you reflect back on your remarkable career, um, how, how did you approach or who helped you, you know, go from knucklehead army infantry guy to suddenly now in a high-tech firm and make that transition? When you, when you reflect back, what – what was the most important things you saw there and then lessons you'd give to other folks coming up through the ranks on how to approach their own development and challenge their own boundaries? I can think about my career. So I actually will start all the way back to uh, when I was in the Army. Hondo. So I was, again, in a technical role, and I had a direct relationship with a mythical Major General, Major General Israel Tal, who's the father of the Merkava tank, who was an armor, really mythical figure. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that he did for me is just enabling me as a young lieutenant and then a young captain. He just, he backed me up. He gave me permission to do things, even though he was known as a ruthless, you know, leader and manager. So just doing that was was one thing. I think, uh, you know, in Elbit, uh, can recall, uh, Joseph Ackerman, who was the president CEO for about 13 years, and uh, a lot of what I learned from him is just uh, the balance, the, the ability to do business in a way that is pleasant, that is balancing both the work and the personal life and the, and the caring for people. 
we try to do the same thing here. Um, you know, one of the things that I've actually, and I, I give credit to uh, on this to uh, uh, Tom Kennedy from Raytheon, and I learned from him back then, uh, Raytheon had uh, some roles of, uh, of people, young people coming in to be uh, in a technical role or a chief of staff role for, for the present CEO. And we've started doing that for the last, uh, I would say, eight years. And we bring in an individual, high potential individual to work with me for two years. And we make sure it's only two years. And we now have a successive set of people that work with me that I was able to develop a relationship. And each one of them, as a result, ended up being promoted, understanding the bigger picture, try to do more of that. So it's do some of the mentoring, do some of the connection, um, make sure that you, you talk to people, do you open the door and, and do that. I think that's what I've seen success for me personally and what we're trying to impart on, on people in our organization. And so as a business leader, I know we have many listeners thinking through demands around talent like you talked about. And COVID really threw a wrench into things, especially as we think about uh, remote work and showing up, which the defense industrial base has a little bit more of a tricky situation when it comes to security sensitivities and and the like. Any advice to business leaders or team leaders thinking through getting folks to come back to work or how you're thinking about hybrid environments? Boy, that's that's definitely a complicated issue. And we, we, like many others, are still struggling where where we are with that. Because I think that um, on one hand, I think it's pretty real and understanding that it's very hard to maintain a family environment and to maintain a sense of mission, the closeness, if you do it all virtual and remote. It's just we're seeing some cracks in that. So we're trying to bring people back in. On the other hand, I think the flexibility that hybrid is providing to the individual and the companies is awesome. And I think we need to find a way to maintain it. Um, so w- we're trying to find what's the right mix. How do we do that? One of the things that I think is important for us, and I think we have not done as well up until now, we want to bring people to the back to the office. We need to give them a good, pleasant experience in an environment, and we can't do it. You know, it, I, I don't know if we have any more of those, but we used to have in our facility some of the old metal Air Force issued desks. I don't think we have any more of them, but it always comes to my mind. How do you want to get people back into the office when you have that kind of an environment? So we're we're investing more in that. We're investing in the environment to make it pleasant, to make it usable and, uh, and find the right balance. Thank you. I've I've been so curious about that. I know so many of us are thinking through what what that'll look like going forward, especially with regards to talent. But thank you so much. You've had so many great and specific ideas for us today. And your story is such an inspiring one. I I like this idea of creating forums for interfacing and exchanging demand signals and making sure we're working closely together across the defense industrial base, whether it's partnering on the private sector side, but ultimately with mission in the warfighter. So thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it was a pleasure, Lauren and Hondo. It's, uh, it's great to share some, some thoughts with you, and thanks for what you're doing. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. You've been listening to Building the Base, a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.